Hello everyone, welcome to Sabbath School Gems, where each week we showcase key concepts from this week's Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath School lesson. Hello everyone, welcome to Sabbath School Gems. This is lesson four for July 24, 2021, titled The Cost of Rest from the Quarterly Rest in Christ. And again, I've asked some of my friends to have a discussion for this version of Sabbath School Gems. Hope you enjoy. Let's bow our heads. Dearest Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this Sabbath day that comes at the end of the week and for this opportunity to gather together to once again open your word and open our hearts to your leading and your influence, especially on the special meeting time that you set aside for us. And I just pray that you will guide the discussion and and guide us in, in our fellowship together and in worship and praise of you and your goodness to us for this past week and and all the promises that you have wrapped up in the sabbath and the sabbath rest that you will give us at the end of time so we ask that you be with us now as we read the scripture that we will understand more about you and come to a deeper love and appreciation for all that you've done to us and that it will help us to reach other people amen Okay, so this is lesson number four. It's titled The Cost of Rest, which I thought was a very interesting title because especially when I read this lesson at first, what is the cost of rest? What, what do we have to pay to rest? What cost are they talking about? And interestingly enough, if you just casually read the lesson, you might not catch what the cost of rest is. I think there are several good candidates for cost of rest and I wanted to discuss that as we go on further. The entire lesson is devoted to one single story. So we'll go into it in some depth. We're talking about the situation with David and Bathsheba. It discusses a narrative in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And we're also covering Psalm, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is what David wrote about the situation. So we have not only the narrative, We've also got David's insights and his own perspective of the events after the fact. So we've got quite a lot of detail. It's quite a detailed story with a lot of turns and twists and things that I think hopefully will be, give us some spiritual insight. So Sambas has a very good question. As I mentioned, we have an inability to bring true rest to our hearts which gives us the suggestion that the cost of rest, which again, is most of you probably understand is the same as the cost of salvation, is higher than we can pay. And there are several almost answers to this question. The Sabbath lesson discussed how we basically need God. That's a very easy, very simple answer. And it's very, very true. With God, we can have rest. Without God, we, can have, we do not have rest but I want to get into even more depths of this. The second answer is suggested by the title of Augustine's book. It says it's the book title is called Confessions. And as we probably know the story of David Bathsheba, the main focus of the lesson today is basically David asking God for forgiveness for this horrible sin. But even this suggests something more. So should we say the cost of rest is asking forgiveness? we can easily ask for forgiveness. 
is there something more than that? So I just want you to think about that as we go onward. So in a quick preview for this, I believe the answer to this question, what the actual true cost of rest is going to be described in Psalms 51. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But let's start with the actual story itself. Um, let's start with 2 Samuel chapter 11. Anyone have the ambition to read all 27 verses? And then we can discuss it. I can read. In the spring at the time when king, kings go off to war, David sent Joab out, of, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof on the, of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah, Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him, but Uriah slept at the entrance of to the palace with all his master's servant and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Urias remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went to out to sleep on his mat among his master's servant. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at, the, at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you, didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did he get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. 
The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Okay, well, thank you. That's a... There's so much in there, as you can probably guess. I want to just get through the whole entire story. You've got so much palace intrigue. You've got secret messages. You've got Joab trying to do something here. You can probably guess, gauge David's intentions, kind of send secret messages back and forth. You've got crimes of kings being committed and pretty much all its ugliness every single form here. So what, the lesson points out, what warning should we all take from this story? This, this is a lesson of the abuse of power, abuse of a king over its, his subjects, right? What lesson do you think we should get? What, what do you get when you read the story, when you hear the story? Any insights, any, any initial impressions? I mean, it, the story has lust, it has murder, it has covetousness, it has all these things. And it's just weird how, you know, I mean, this is probably the worst. I mean, he actually killed a man just because he was fooling around with his wife. And it's just, it's, it's horrible. And then at the very end is... Jocelyn read at the very end, it says, yeah, but this thing displeased the Lord. It, it's like, it seems like it's out of proportion. I mean, displeased the Lord is like the understatement of the century because it, it's like, I'm sure that it's just, I mean, if it would mortify us and as we see, it would hurt um, David too later that I'm sure that that word displeased the Lord is not a simple, oh, well, I'm you know, wow, I'm kind of sad that he did that. It's a, it's a grievous thing that he did. Well, other question I have here is what point did David sin? What point did he start sinning in this story? You have him staying. Lust of the eyes, I think. <laughs> oh, yes. Staying back from the army. You've got him wandering on rooftops and etc. Calling people to his house and covering up so forth. Interesting perspective that hit me for the first time when studying this is the end of the story where it mentions again, after everyone's dead, David sent over and brought Bathsheba to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. She stayed and remained his wife the rest of, his day, rest of her days, rest of his days. Was this still a sin? What, what would be the ideal outcome for the story? What, what should have happened? Was this what God wanted? 
I think goes, God was very displeased. I think what you see with this too is you see the pattern of not just sinning but covering up. Like what a sin that just keeps blowing out of proportion. It's like the, you know, it's like Pinocchio's nose. Once you tell one lie, then you kind of have to tell another lie and another lie and another lie. And and so it's kind of the same thing. He, you know, he overstepped the bounds in one area and then that led to something else. And then she ends up getting pregnant. And so then he schemes this other scheme. And then it's like a constant barrage of of sin and it shows us how you know we just get off track a little bit and we can go off track really quickly you know mm -hmm. with just one thing after another and and the compound i mean they always they say this in politics too it's like maybe you make a mistake but the worst is a cover-up and we can see how you know david went down this whole route of covering up and and getting himself deeper and deeper they could just keep getting deeper in the, the quicksand. Exactly. And that's probably one of the most important lessons of this story. In fact, I, there's a Bible verse discussing the situation in ancient Israel where it mentions in Numbers 32, 23, the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. These secret things will be revealed. Things hidden will eventually get out. And it's not as if David didn't have a lot of other wives and concubines. <laughs> he did. Exactly. But it's, I think it teaches us a spiral of sin. We're, we start off with something, something wrong. If we hide it, we ex cover it up in a worse way. Then we cover it up in a worse way. It starts involving more and more people. And as you probably can tell, it, how would you like to be someone working for God? You have a chapter in the Bible and you have two whole chapters of the Bible dedicated to just this story, to just your mistakes, to your flaws. And yes, I, I do like the comment briefly made before that, yes, I think her sin did, David's sin did start when he was observing things. There's always that famous text, does someone have Matthew 5? Can you read Matthew 5, 27 to 30? This is Jesus giving a message about sin and when it starts and what the situation is, I think applies to this story. Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, honey. Okay, me. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whosoever, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Did you want? Uh, yeah, do 30 as well. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you than one of your members perish, than your whole body to be cast into hell. Okay, so these are the statements of Jesus. 
Uh, my question to you is, if this is advice Jesus is giving for situations like this, what is he actually saying here? Is he saying literally, King David, you've walked on your rooftop. You've seen this beautiful woman. I want you to get a tool and physically cut the eye out of your body. What do you think he's actually, what does he think this actually means? What should we take? Cast that thought from your mind. I think with God's help, we can do that. What should David have done at each of these points? If he was seeing this woman lusting after her and he's trying to, and calls her in, has this affair and she says, I'm pregnant. What could have he done at that point? Well, you know, I think that at any point in this process, you're going to have problems trying to fix it because once sin is committed, it's a really hard thing to fix. I mean, you can see what Jesus has gone through, what God is going through to try and get the sin problem taken care of. And I like what the lesson brought out that it said that David should have been with his army. He should have been somewhere else. And, you know, an idle heart is a devil's playground. And when you take it, and I think what, what Christ is saying is know what your bad tendencies are, know where you're likely to have problems. David had a lot of wives, he had a lot of concubines. He knew he had a problem long before this situation happened. And so what I think what Jesus is saying is figure out which limb it is that's going to offend and deal with it ahead of time. And um, I had never considered this before, but David shouldn't have been there. He really should not have been in that situation. He shouldn't have been anywhere around that situation. And he should have known that that was a problem that he had. So he should have been doing something else before that to fix the problem before it happened, because that really is our only defense. Our only defense against sin is to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit telling us our our inborn and cultivated tendencies to sin and fixing those problems ahead of time. Because once the sin is already done, there's, you know, only God can fix that at that point. Our responsibility is to take care of it beforehand. Exactly. And I, and I think it's not easy to take care of it beforehand, which is why he uses that illustration of, of cutting off a limb or, you know, plucking out your eye or something. It's, it's like, it's very painful, but you're trying to save the body. And so, you know, to realize that there's no easy fixes and somebody thinks, oh, well, I did this thing wrong and, and, and now I'm really in trouble. Well, but fix, it's still better to fix it then and not wait until you do more and, and more and more. I mean, if the first was bad that requires you cutting off a limb of your body, then, you know, you, you can't just keep on that same path. So I think it's, it's just realizing that when we do something wrong, it's a painful process. It's not, it's not always easy. In fact, somebody said, you know, not everything can be fixed. And in, in David's case, you know, it, it really, it can't be fixed. It can't be undone. 
but you know, God can fix it, but he can't undo it. And, you know, I think it's just a matter of recognizing that early on before we go even further that it's, it's going to be a painful process. It's not easy. It's not just like, Oh, okay. I'll just ask for forgiveness and everything will be back to normal. I mean, it's going to involve some painful processes, but in the end, it's better to stop it early. Exactly. That's, that's exactly what I was thinking of as well. If he called Uriah back to the palace and, and apologized profusely and just, just admitted he was not, he was a sinner. You made a horrible mistake. The story would have still been pretty bad, but it would not have gotten as worse as it did. In this day and age, I think they would just get an abortion. <laughs> Sad, sadly. Most likely, but let's, let's not go there. That's true. One other interesting thing which comes to mind is, look at David's life. When he worked through so many problems, he describes confronting the lion and the bear as a shepherd. He confronted Goliath. Did he seem to have any trouble at those points? Did he seem to have to, was he failing when he confronted warfare, when he confronted overwhelming crazy situations, Saul attempting to kill him, the army chasing him down? I think this is another case of where you know, power corrupts um, because, you know, he, he did have kind of humble beginnings and he was motivated for God when he went out to fight Goliath and he didn't have any ideas of, of grandiose or splendor or anything. He just wanted to fight for God and for what was right. And now we see a different type of David who's, you know, he's really kind of comfortable and, you know, this is where you have a lot of power. I mean, it happens to a lot of people when they get fame or power and then they just start getting corrupted and they start wanting more and more because it's not, you're never, you're never satisfied unless you have God. And so they, they get things and then they just want more and more. And when you get power, you can have more, you can have whatever you want. So that's what I think happened to David. I think he fell into that trap. I think this is another illustration of the power of uh, our eyes. The thing that we see and the things that we uh, hang on to and and begin to uh, lust after really begin to shape our life. I know that as a pastor, uh, I have had uh, women that were interested in doing things with me, but I was very cautious because I knew, uh, first of all, I was, I had a wonderful wife. And then second of all, or maybe the first thing was that uh, my relationship and my ministry was at risk. So to me, it really wasn't a temptation and I uh, nipped the bud by beginning to say such lovely things about my wife. And then it was like a fence that went up around me. And so people could uh, see that where my loyalty was. But the eyes are 
are an open eye gate, I mean, a gateway to sin. And we really have to watch what we are looking at, at on the television and other other venues because uh, the eyes are the beginning of our temptation. Uh, sometimes I'm somewhere and I see uh, maybe parts of a lady's body that I had not intended to see. And I have a little trick that I use. I just rebuke that thought out of my mind and that visualization of the image that I had just seen. And I say, Lord, I just put this under the blood, take care of it. I don't want it in my head or in my mind. The danger is when we begin to savor the thought and we begin to um, act on, on that. And we have to take authority over Satan and rebuke him and resist him. So when temptation comes, uh, I'll often say, Satan, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus by the authority of God's word. And uh, I thank God that I live in victory because of that. And we certainly don't want to turn on channels of pornography and things like that. True. Thank you. Sunday's lesson points out that even the king, he was not above God's law. The law is there as a protection, a safeguard. And even as the king stepped outside it, he faced terrible consequences. As soon as David transgressed the limits of God's law, he began to feel its effects on all the aspects of his life. And I, I do want to develop that idea, which again, you're mentioning here as well. The lesson points out, of course, about the pregnancy and so forth. But my question is, and this gets back to what you were saying a second ago, if this pregnancy had not occurred, if let's say this cover-up was successful and Bathsheba never told anyone, David never told anyone, and we don't have these two chapters in the Bible about it. What would have been the consequence of violating God's law if no one found out? So it hit me really interestingly is who's calling attention to this? It's God. God sends a prophet, Nathan, which we'll get into in just a second. And he's the one calling attention to this. He's the one who made this all public. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, the, the lesson said something about, you know, I think, you know, further on in the lesson, it talks about how David repented and, you know, well, look at, look at what happened to Adam and Eve. They just hid. And I thought, I thought that's, that's weird because really David hid, you know, he's the one that hid too. He sinned, he was ashamed, and he hid. He was he was hiding the sin even from himself, I think. He was hiding behind this facade that he didn't do anything. And, you know, he thought no one else saw it. <clears throat> so, yeah, I think it would just, it would fester and it would eat. And, I mean, it would cause all the problems that it causes because what it does, ultimately, whatever, what the sin does, it doesn't matter what man sees, if man sees our sin or not. It's not... It's not like, well, you know, like some people will steal something and they go, well, as long as I don't get caught, it was okay. It's not okay. And it's not okay even if nobody catches you. 
And the same thing with the with the sin, it, it severs your relationship with God, and it's not okay. It doesn't matter who knows about it or, or not. And so it, it, it would have still been bad, even if she didn't get pregnant. I think in, in God's mercy, these things happen so that he could save David, you know, for maybe even worse. Because, I mean, it, it looks it looks bad for David at the outset. Oh, no, she's pregnant. What do I do? But in the end, I think it, it probably would have been better for the kingdom if that happened then i mean because uriah lost his life so it's it's not anything and the baby lost its life and so it, it's not anything to just you know brush off but just think david had a whole kingdom of people and he was setting an example to them and i think it could have been worse i think what god always tries to do or what god does is try to make the things that we do wrong he tries to turn them in for good or as best as possible scenario. So I think that's what happened. So yeah, if, if nobody found out or if Bathsheba didn't get pregnant, it, it, it would have been probably worse for the whole kingdom. Okay, let's move on to Monday's lesson. Um, can someone read the first, well, let's go to the full, first 14 verses of Second Samuel 12. This is the, Story of Nathan confronting David. I can read that. <clears throat> then the Lord sent the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his own bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore four, fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Of course, you can't restore something like that. Then Nathan said to David, you are this man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have also given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. Okay, there's a lot of things here. Big one, of course, is when the lesson points out, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And 
and you also see in for Psalms 51, it says, I have sinned against the Lord and only him. Why doesn't he say, I have sinned against the nation, I have sinned against Bathsheba, I am a murderer, I have sinned against Uriah. Doesn't he sin against everyone? Didn't he abuse his power against the nation? What did he think David means by saying, I've sinned only against you? Well, I think he, he saw that as the greater as the, the greater sin. It's like Abraham, when he was going to sacrifice Isaac, he realized that the relationship between him and God was so much greater than the promise that God gave him through his son. So he was willing practically to die because he knew that the relationship was more important. And I think David saw that too. He saw his relationship with God being severed and the sin really was against God. It was against God's laws. And so he saw that as, as the greater. Exactly. Now, uh, I did some digging into this question and Ellen White makes a comment in Patriarchs and Prophets saying, but infinitely greater was his sin against God. So I think that's the perspective here. It's the scale of the damage is pretty huge. You have God's chosen, the person he's opening a covenant relationship with as the first of Israel, of Judah's kings, of a long lineage of kings. And he's setting the example for all of his children, all future generations. And he messes up so badly. He does such a horrible act and damages God's reputation. So, again, I just want to call your attention back to the same question we dealt with before. Today, we deal with issues privately often. We run into problems. We run into sins. We run into abuses of power. We deal with these issues privately. If someone's caught doing something wrong, you often have a private hearing. You dismiss them. The person voluntarily resigns. If you have a problem in the household between family members, you usually don't publicize the issues between family members to strangers, to people outside, or even, to, even to friends. You keep things private inside the family. So again, why do you think God calls such attention to this event? What benefit can we get out of this story? What, what should we learn from this? So I think we have to realize that every sin <laughs> we commit is ultimately a sin against God. And it, it hurts God who loves us so much that he willingly gave his son to die for us, that when we commit sin against our brother or sister or families or whatever, uh, it, we ultimately are sinning against God because uh, God has given us the truth and has shown us the way to walk in. in and when we fail to walk in that truth, uh, we sin. Exactly. 
Uh, Julie, do you have something as well? Yeah, you know, God has to keep the whole entire universe running. The reason that David's sin was such a problem is because he was such a public figure and his actions influenced so many. He was king and he was over so many. And if he did one thing and got away with it, then everybody else would have a problem with it. So think about it this way. God has to keep all the planets spinning. He has to keep everything in perfect order in his universe. What if, you know, Saturn just decided, I don't want to spin in this orbit. I want to go somewhere else. And it, it starts, you know, careening in a different direction than everybody else is going. It's going to hit something. It's going to collide. It's going to affect all the other planets in the solar system. But it doesn't do that. And the reason it doesn't do that is because it follows God's command. Yes. When you look at Joel 2 and you see God's army, they march in perfect order. They don't break ranks. They don't push one another. They're completely moving according to God's command. And so, yes, David sinned against all these other individual people, but ultimately God is the one that's in authority and he's the one keeping the entire universe going and moving. And he's the one making sure that, you know, if he lets me into the, his kingdom, I don't go, you know, off rogue somewhere and impact somebody else. And, you know, that goes off another direction. I mean, there would just be chaos like there is on this planet. So when you look at that sin, Yes, he sinned against God because that was who he didn't, that was who he disobeyed. God had given him a command to do the right thing and, and his sin against all these other people was a consequence of the fact that David sinned against God because he didn't listen to God. He didn't keep everything working in God's perfect harmony and order. And because he was such a public figure, it was just that much more obvious. I mean, look at this story. How many thousands of years later and David's sin is still blowing out there to the wind and we're all reading it. I mean, we all hope that our sins aren't that public, but I mean, he was a public figure then. He's still a public figure now. Oh boy, he's going to have to deal with it. Exactly. In Exodus 34, the character of God's described I just want to highlight one phrase here. It describes as keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. What do you think it means when it says by no means clearing, clearing the guilty? What's the difference between clearing the guilty, which God does not do, and forgiveness, which God obviously does. We still have to suffer the consequence of the sin that we committed, but the Lord will forgive us for that, but there's um, inevitable uh, consequence that comes from that. And you have to ask for forgiveness. Yes. I think, too, ultimately, one of the beauties of this story is, is that right away when David was confronted with, this is what you have done, you are the man, 
this is the sin you've committed, he immediately repented. And I, I think that this is a difference between those who commit sin and don't repent and those who commit sin and once it's pointed out to them, they repent. Exactly. And that's why I want to jump to next is on Tuesday's lesson. David does say to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And, the, and Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. So he is forgiven. And there's no question here. There's no delay. And as we can all tell from reading the story, how much, how much better would it have been if David had done this before, he obviously decided, had not decided to repent and confess earlier. He didn't confess when, when the pregnancy occurred. He didn't confess when even the murder was committed. He this still lingered on. It still stayed unaddressed, un, unconfronted. But then Nathan does go on. He does say, a couple interesting things. He does say the child will die. He does say, I will raise up adverse adversity against you and your house. I will take your wives before your eyes give them to your neighbors. Are you sure this is not a punishment? Is this, what, what is all this adversity coming from? Is this God punishing David? Yes, I think so. I think he's reaping the consequences of his own actions. Reading a little bit ahead in the Bible, you have some other interesting stories. You have, I think the very next chapter, you've got his son, Amon, raping his sister. And you have David doing absolutely nothing in response. He doesn't punish him. He doesn't call him out. He doesn't do anything. And then another son, of course, Absalom, after some time, plots and carries out a plot to kill Amon and, and performs the plot. He, he kills his brother in retaliation for what his brother did. And what does David do again? He does absolutely nothing. He takes no action. If David had followed God through everything he did in his life, would that story, do you think that story would have worked out differently? Would, again, this is a question which no one can really answer, but do you think David would have been more proactive? Would have been stronger with his sons? What times should we punish our children? What times should we discipline our children versus, versus not discipline them? These, again, I don't want to read too much into this. But did David's character change is my main question. Something happened to him despite his forgiveness that brought these consequences or do you think these consequences were actions God took? I mean, I think in some, in some ways it's neither of those and it's both of those, but I think, you know, you have to realize that David is who he is and he has his own flaws and, and his own weaknesses and, his children were able to see that even before this incident happened. So they were already being influenced. Um, 
and I think by by this whole incident, they were not seeing necessarily a good way out of it. And so they're not protected from being safeguarded against their lusts because they kind of saw that or witnessed that in their father. And so I, I think it's just, it ends up being a consequences of when, when we don't follow God and we're, we're not aligned on the, the track, we do influence others around us. And it's not an excuse for them. It's not an excuse for his children or his household or anything else. But the cost of sin is death of innocent is usually what happens. And, or, and, and death by death, it's not always like a physical death. It's like Jacob and what happened to him. He had to get separated from his mother and didn't get to see his family until years later. And, and still he had probably some estrangement with Esau. It, it severs things and it, it's just, it's bad. I mean, that's why God doesn't want us to sin. It's not just because he has this list of rules that, you know, that, you know, if we, we go out of that, it's, it, it, it's really bad things happen when we deviate from what God has for us. And, and it affects a whole lot of people and it permeates through time. So, you know, it's, it's hard. What you're asking is kind of like, well, what if this happened? What if that, what if that, but you know, we have to look at the whole entire picture and just the fact that our sins affect other people, whether we want them to or not. And they have long-term re you know, repercussions. And I think that's the bigger message that we need to get out of this. There is one beautiful aspect of the story, which it's in this horrible story is right at the very end. Anyone have a chance to read Second Samuel chapter 12, just last two verses, 24 and 25? I can read it. Second Samuel 12, 24 and 25. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Beloved of the Lord, it means. How many of you remember this section where we, of course, know the story of Solomon, but that Solomon had another name, and this name was given to him again I just love the phrase here. He sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So God gives Solomon a special secondary name. And that name is beloved of the Lord. So despite all the problems, despite all the issues, we do have a son born from these two individuals. And that son becomes the next king. He Obviously has many mistakes he made himself. But again, he's blessed of God. God is still interacting, still working with both David and his son. Well, you know, and it says that, you know, they re reference to David that he's a man after God's own heart. And you think about that. Why would that be? Look at, look at the horrible things he's done. But, you know, part of the part of turning from our sins is taking responsibility, which of course David didn't do at first. 
And then it's having this remorse and this repentance. And you can see how David is hit really, really deeply by that story. And I think it was really important to use that story that Nathan used because it really did hit David deep in his heart. And he could see how what he did severed his relationship from God and that hurt him. And because he, because as God wants a relationship with us, you know, David wanted that relationship with God. And so I think that that, that is the, the difference is that, you know, sometimes like in Cain's case, let's take, you know, he sinned, but he didn't really have that deep, remorse for what he did in in that it broke his relationship with God. He was worried about his relationship with man. He was worried about his own life and and how it was going to affect his life and he's like I'm I'm a marked man and I, you know now I'm not going to be able to live out my life and you know he was worried about the consequences of his sin whereas David was worried about the con consequence being the severing of his, his relationship with God. So I think that's that's the difference in the in the response. It wasn't just, yeah, I feel bad for what I did. Look, I've been caught, you know, I've been found out. But it was like, wow, I really sinned against God and really severed my relationship with him. And I need I need this relationship because I need to govern all these people. And so I think David was really he he did really feel remorse and it did really hit him very deep in his heart. Um Okay, and that's what I'd like to dive into next is skip ahead to basically Wednesdays and Thursdays lesson where we dig into Psalm 51. Again, as I mentioned earlier, this is where David's perspective is given. He's responding to these exact events and he's telling us what he's thinking, what his thoughts on the situation was. It says right in the intro, this is a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he went to Bathsheba. And for the sake of time, let me just summarize this quickly. In Psalm 51, 1 through 6, it has several great sections here. Just one and two. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And of course, in three, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. What does this suggest on our earlier question about what the cost of forgiveness is? What is what does David need here? What is he demanding? What is he asking for? Is he going to God and saying, please just forgive me? Thank you. I've got my forgiveness. I think he wants to um, go a step further and just become healed by God. He wanted to be cleansed and he wanted to restore that relationship that he had with him. And he acknowledged the fact that in order to do that, he needed this healing and he needed um, God to cleanse him. Exactly. Ellen White points out, yes, this is a complete surrender of the old life a complete transformation of heart he's asking for. Again, Patriarchs and Prophets has this comment saying, 
David's repentance was sincere and deep. There was no effort to palliate his crime, no desire to escape the judgments. He saw the enormity of his transgression against God. He saw the defilement of his soul, and he loathed his sin. It's not for pardon he's asking for. He's asking for purity of heart. And that's what I want to emphasize here. He's asking for a changed heart. He's asking for a complete transformation of heart. And he's seeing that in these promises of God, that he can receive pardon and acceptance despite what he does here. Yeah, and like Jocelyn said, he wants that restored relationship because you see later on in that same psalm, it says, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So he doesn't want to be separated from God. You know, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. So in other words, how can you, how can he come to God and, and be there with God when God, when, when those sins are like between them? Um, and so it's really just, he wants that restored. He doesn't want to be cast away from God's presence. He wants to be restored and that's what's necessary to restore that relationship. Anyone have a chance to read one last section here? I'd like to highlight Psalm 51 verses 7 through 12. Okay, go ahead. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast, I like the old King James, a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Amen. Such a beautiful passage. I'm personally experiencing broken bones, so I can emphasize, I can definitely feel that section where it says that the bones you have broken may rejoice. I'm dealing with horrible consequences to my sin, which God did not remove. God did not choose to save David's son. He did not choose to interpose. He did not chose to take the consequences away. David went through quite a lot. And again, that's obviously much deeper than what we can get into in this lesson just today. But I think it's an experience we all have. We all have situations we put ourselves in. And there's things God does to call us back to repentance. does call us back to see the enormity of sin. And I think this is the main purpose of the story is to show us, yes, this is what reality is. This is what human beings do. This is what we may have not done something to this scale before. But we all have messed up. We all have 
covered things up. We've all hidden things. And God is the one who has to clean things up, has to heal and call attention to and bring us a shame as a sin, bring us a need for repentance and help us lead us towards turning to him. Julie? Well, it, oh. uh, you know, I think that, that I'd like to point out that letting God be God takes a certain amount of faith. It takes a certain amount of faith that what he commands is right and that we need to follow it. And it takes a certain amount of faith to trust that however he solves the sin problem, however he keeps that, you know, sin is like a pebble dropping in water and the ripple effect goes out and touches everything and everyone. However, he, he plans on mitigating that ripple effect. We need to trust that he is able to do that, that he is the one that has the right path, that he knows what he's doing. Because otherwise, you know, you take this situation and you could say, well, why did the child die? And why did this happen? And why did that happen? And why did Uriah have to die? And, you know, all these different things, you, you could continually question God, but it takes a certain amount of faith to trust that he's going to keep the planet spinning and they're not going to collide. And he knows how that is. And we just don't. It takes a certain amount of faith to be that army marching to his command and not breaking ranks, not thinking, oh, well, I'm going to go off and do this on my own. It's, it's, you know, I can see that this needs to be done and maybe God didn't notice that or something, but just trusting that he knows best and following him. And we all have to develop that amount of faith. You know, yes, we need to understand these stories, but there's parts of these parts of the Bible that you may never understand other than just realizing that we need to trust God and let God be God and we are not God. And Diane, you had something? Yeah. I, I just like that, that ending there that, you know, when part of repentance is you're turning from your ways and you're, and you repair, you try to repair, you try to, you, you don't re, you don't repeat what you did if you're really truly re, repentant and, I think that in this case, you know, David couldn't really save his household or anything. They were going to do what they were going to do with, with the consequences. But I like this chapter. Uh, I like this verse 13. This is, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. And I like how David took this bad thing that happened to him and he turned it around to teach others. And I think he was okay with having this story in the Bible for everyone to see for all these generations. Because if it helps us come to God and be converted to God, then and he's saving people from maybe similar sins or or whatever it is that we have that they can that we can see now as an example of someone who really, truly was remorseful for what he did. He and he really changed and how much better to try to repair something than to try to keep others from falling in the same trap that you fell into. And so I think I, I like that because that's what I think that he wanted. And he asked God and look at what happened. It, it happened that this story is now trying to teach others transgressors God's way so that we don't, we don't, that we can be converted, that we can repent and come to God. And it's like, he set the way he's a true leader. Ellen White has one final comment, which I was wanting to close on. It says, so David had fallen the Lord lifted him up. 
he was now more fully in harmony with God and in sympathy with his fellow men than before he fell. I thought that was such a powerful idea that he lived his entire life following God, doing God's work, obeying God, having miraculous events guide his life, miraculous protection. But he was had to experience something like this, and he did experience something like this before he became even more fully in harmony with God. Yeah, and I, you know, just to, to follow what you said, um, it, as long as people don't take that as, well, we need to fall. If, if it shouldn't be a case of we need to fall so then we can be restored and be better. I mean, obviously that's not the path that God wants us to take. I think this is more of a testament to what God can do with the messes that we make. He can make it even better um, if we let him. But, but, if we, but I, I think his desire is that we don't fall just because he was better after he fell doesn't mean that that was the best route. Definitely true. Any last thoughts? Well, I think, Diana, that's a result of a, a humble and a contrite spirit and seeking God and seeking forgiveness is that that strengthens the relationship and brings us closer to him. I think certainly that anyone who does what David did and doesn't repent is definitely not closer to God. So there's definitely a, a path in two different directions that you could walk. And um, anytime we seek God and get closer to him, um, he's going to use that opportunity to um, bless us and, and bring us that way. He's, he's not going to reject us. And I think that that's, you know, Nathan says, you know, right away, God didn't, delay in any way he was forgiven it's like god wants us to go in that direction he knows it's going to be so much better for us okay i guess we can wrap things up uh can someone say a closing prayer i'll say closing prayer okay thank you our loving father in heaven we thank you for the words that you've given us in your scripture, the stories that they tell, the hearts that they reveal, and the path that, um, the light that it makes clear for us on our path um, to decide if we want to follow you with our whole hearts. And I just pray that for each one of us here and for those listening to this podcast, that you would impress our hearts to choose right and to choose you and to desire to follow you and to be with you at every crossroads, at every turning. And Lord, as we see the effects of this sin and how you are trying to use it, as David said, to teach others your law, um, we just pray that you would help us to see where our tendencies are to transgress against you before we sin. Help us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, your indwelling Holy Spirit, to draw closer to you and to cut off that tendency to go far from you in every way. I, I just pray that you would help us to seek you with our whole hearts and um, desire to be right with you, that your kingdom 
may be restored, that the sin problem may be dealt with, and that we would be on your side during that whole process. Lord, Amen. it's such a battle, and we need to choose sides. Help us to realize that every good gift comes from you. And help us, Lord, to seek you with our whole hearts. I pray and I thank you for these blessings. And I thank you again for this lesson study and um, for all those that are here um, uh, who could join in and draw closer to you. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for joining us for this episode of Sabbath School Gems. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word to others. Comments and questions can be sent to us at sabbathschoolgems at gmail.com. Bye for now.